Chapter One of Birch Tree of Hawks and Hawking. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kurt Walton. Birch Tree of Hawks and Hawking by Edmund Burt. Chapter One. The author's opinion of the goshawk and tarsal, and of their difference, all of which he writeth unto them that are of the small practice, and to them that would have their labors put to their best profit. The goshawk is most able to endure much, and is more profitable than the tarsal, not only with bringing home many quarries, but with bringing diversity and variety of their quarries. Her disposition is meek and gentle. If she be mildly dealt with, and not so apt to ill conditions as is the tarsal, she is subject to seek for poultry, and to which fault she will never fall, except it be through want of knowledge in her keeper, which fault to prevent as also how to reclaim a hog from that evil condition or any other i will hereafter give most plain and true instruction in his proper place chapter two wherein the tarsal differeth from the goshawk except it be for his practice i would not advise him that he cannot rightly affect all things in a goshawk to meddle with the tarsal for he is apt to ill conditions which every good ostringer if he will is able to prevent he will take dislike at many things or at anything he is apt to royal and sometimes may find poultry that is fit for his turn and if he once take a liking and stand well affected that way there is none unfit for him he will quickly know a dove house and too soon learn to find the way into it and then he hath wit enough to please himself but these faults and many more follow such hawks as are not well handled but are harshly and unkindly dealt with in their first manning. He is light-headed and nimble-winged. The quick handling of them in his flying pleases more than the goshawk, and therein the sparhawk exceeds the tarsal, and the merlin therein exceeds both goshawk, tarsal, and sparhawk. They may fitly be compared into a large gelding, and a smaller. The first having a large and long stroke goeth faster than he seemeth, the other that gathereth short and thick seemeth to go much faster than he doth. The larger shall enforce the lesser to strike thrice for the ground that he will almost it twice perform. My opinion is, he that riddeth most ground with most ease shall longest endure. Judge yourself the difference between the goshawk, tarsal, and sparhawk. Chapter 3 Of goshawks there are three several kinds and so of tarsals the haggard hawk the ramish and the eyes much differing from the rest i only write now the differing dispositions of these hawks and other several properties and of the inconveniences that followeth them in particular first to the haggard in general she hath long lived at liberty having many things at her command and she is therefore the harder to be brought into subjection and obedience in her first manning she is apt to take every accidental location that giveth offence to come from her keeper as a young horse in his first riding if he shall bog or be afraid of something if his rider shall then spur him upon it the horse must thus think that the thing whereupon now in fear all his thoughts are placed is the true moor of the spurs that torment him so the haggard tied to her master's fist that baiteth and then find her restraint the object taken away she will stare at her keeper in the face and think all the offence came from him to whose fish she was tied 
otherwise she had been at liberty, could have freed herself from whatsoever feared her. But let me speak now this more than I purposed, lest hereafter in his proper place I may forget to give that caveat. In the haggard, be so angry as that she stared thee in the face upon such an accidental occasion, or sudden thought of her present bondage. Own it not, see it not, and by all means possibly carry thine own eye from looking upon her, for that will work more dislike towards thee, which, if you observe, you shall sooner find her pacified. She seldom meweth timely or orderly, and although some can say that they have had a haggard goshawk mewed well and fair, fit to draw at Bartholomew, I answer one swallow maketh not a summer. When the haggard is flying, nature is altered, and therefore I must not here speak of her good or bad properties at that time, for they are wrought in her through the good or bad discretion of her keeper. When she is in making, or after she was made, as her keeper thought, I will leave those to their proper place. Only I say, and so conclude, that your haggard is very loving and kind to her keeper. After that he hath brought her, by his sweet and kind familiarity, to understand him. But if she fall into any vice, she is most hardly reclaimed from it, and brought to good perfection again. If it shall be hoped for, it shall soonest be gotten and performed by exchanging her keeper, if his skill may equal her former keeper. Chapter 4 of the Description of the Ramish Hawk There is a small difference between the haggard and the ramish. Only the ramish hawk hath had less time, by praying for herself, than the other, to know her own strength and worth. But in manning and making her I will set down my whole practice, with my friendly advice to others that will enter into the same course, for in the ramish hawk is my especial delight, for in them my labors have proved most successful. Chapter 5 of the Ayas Hawk, upon whom I can fasten no affection for the multitude of her follies and faults. I feel it most burdensome to spend my time idly. I think the difference little, either to be idle or spend the time to no purpose, or be long doing a little, in such effect his travel will give him for reward that meddle with, with an Ayas, except the long expectation of goodwill will give him satisfaction, for they are so foolish as the first year. They will hardly be taught to take a bow well, and if that cannot be effected, there can be no prosperous success expected. I have known some that have not proved very excellent the second year in taking a bow. And then it is a foul fault to do nothing the first year, and not very much the second, for I have seen diverse intermewers hang with their head downward, holding a bow fast in her foot or feet. I have known some of them, likewise, that would sooner catch a dog in the field than a partridge. And although she had flown a partridge very well to mark, and fat well, yet so soon as the dog had come into the retrove, she would have had him by the face. One other, as ill a fault as this, if she fly well, yet it is odds you shall find her sitting upon the ground at mark, when although you keep your dogs quietly behind you, and though you use some course to terrify her, or take her between your hands and throw her up, you may perhaps find her folly. Give her leave to fall again upon the ground within twelve or twenty yards of you. Fear the worst, the best will help itself. 
it may be she will not go to a tree at all. This is grievous. Neither will most of them like the hood well, and many of them will cry as loud as you, as you will speak to them. Neither can I hope to buy a sound hog of them from the cage, who knoweth not that they are hot and scratching upon the quarry. Art will easily amend that fault, which I will not fail to deliver in its place. But this I say, if a man have the patience to endure their impatience, and attend a long time for their good proof, if at the last she shall prove well, she may be ranked among the best in the highest degree. She will ever mew orderly and timely, and expect some evil accident shorten her days. She will live longer than any of the rest. She is not apt to be sick or surfeit so soon as the other. Yet if a sickening should befall her, she will outgrow it with less danger than the other. In this discourse I have altogether spoken of the eye as hawk, but the tarsal is not so unapt to take a bow, neither is he apt to catch dogs, if he prove well. There can no attribute be given to the ramish tarsal, but all quantities examined. He shall own as good or better, and thus much is concerning my opinion of the eye as hawk. Chapter 6 To the Friendly Reader Friendly Reader, before I begin to treat of the ramish hawk, and to set down the courses whereby I have made so many and so extraordinary good hawks, as they could not be bettered, both for flying and good conditions, I must tell you, and so far explain myself, that I do not therein so much arrogate to myself as to think my courses are not to be equaled, but they may be bettered, even by men that live in obscurity, but for what I write is my opinion, from which, although it shall move others but little, I cannot be drawn, because I have had thereby so good, so prosperous, and so profitable success. Some may contrary my opinion, who can for themselves say but as I do, that their opinion is such. If I cannot set down sufficient reasons for my proceedings, my hawk shall testify for me. It has lost laying by me, and that I have not been forward to publish this but in a manuscript, is very well known to many of my friends, gentlemen that have come to visit and comfort me in the time of my sickness, which hath continued with me for the most part of three years, in all which time I have made but only one hawk, but diverse have been brought unto me to be cured of diverse diseases, and some to be reclaimed from ill conditions. And by these gentlemen I have been overpowered, desiring that my knowledge might not be buried with me, to thrust out my labors to public view. And although my memory hath escaped some secret, yet I am assured that the skillfulest shall find something herein set down, that neither he nor any man hath made use of, either in making his hawk of good and fair condition, or in reclaiming her, or any other of their kind, from any ill condition, and thus followeth my direct course for the reclaiming, maining, and making of my short-winged hawk. Chapter 7 The Manner How I Have Used the Ramish Sore Goshawk After I Have Taken Her From the Cage Unto My Fist Until She Hath Been Flying I must speak something of the time wherein usually I make choose to buy my ramish hawk about the latter end of Michael Amos term, or if I can learn that there are more hawks coming before Christmas, I will tarry their coming for those hawks do not show themselves out of the great coverts until after St. James, and to buy one of them in the beginning of Michael Amos term that hath been so long taken and done so little for herself, 
I like not. But I will hope for a more late-taken hawk, which, when I have, I follow in this manner. I continue her upon my fist ten days or a fortnight. Unless in a shorter time I find her a sound hawk, which I shall sooner understand, because I see how she putteth over her meat, how she doth and do it, and if there be any doubt of her well-doing, there shall hardly a mute escape my sight, whosoever doth carry her for me, for she shall be well assured to find no other perch than my fist. From that time I rise, until I go to bed, when she shall go with me, and if in this time I find it fit, she doth not fail to have casting. I find no time lost in this course, for in this time I will raise my hawk and give her strength, and she will be the less time after she is unhooded before she doth fly. My castings that I give are thrums gotten of the weaver. I get them washed, but not with soap. I cut the threads an inch long or less, and I size them out for a small casting, and give them loose with her meat, or otherwise. I tie upon the threads two or four small knots, leaving some threads open at the end of either knot. Otherwise, I give plumage and some small bones. If the fowl like me, the bones of that part of the wing that is usually broken from the partridge, flannel I could never approve of, neither did I ever use the jukes and feathers of a house dove, for they, by reason of their own dung they sit in, are hot and strong in flavor. I am careful not to make my casting too great. I think there is no man but hath that care if he but undertake to feed a hawk. When I find my hawk in strength of body and stomach bettered, I proceed to peppering, for I will let nothing escape me unset down in the whole practice of my hawk until I have made her flying. Although peppering be as common with every man as feeding, yet because I have known and heard of many hawks that have died upon peppering, when I had younger experience, I grew very careful thereof, and I took this course. First I made my water seethe, and then I put thereto a quantity of pepper, and a less quantity of sauce acre pounded small. I put in the less of both, because I seethed them in water, which maketh the water strong. When the water had sawed a while, I did strain it through a fine linen cloth, which should suffer neither pepper nor stoss acre to go through, and therein I would then wash my hawk. My reason why I do not allow of, nor use the common course of peppering, is this. The water not strained through a cloth, the pepper hangeth in the hawk's feathers, and when she falleth to pruning of herself, she oftentimes getteth into her beak, and so it hangeth either upon the tongue or in the mouth of the hawk, and setteth it on fire. The heat and dislike whereof maketh many hawks to cast their gorge, and so their sickness increasing, they die. Besides, I have come many times to some places four or five days, or a week after that they have peppered their hawks, and I have seen the back part of their wings red so long after the peppering, there may thereupon grow, although not suddenly, an incurable blister, which will lame his hawk, and her master shall never know how it cometh. But with the roughness of pepper, and with the ill handling of them that have executed that office, I have many times seen the skin of that place rubbed off. If any man will follow my course, he may, if not, let this warn him of the inconveniences that follow the other, 
many hawks having died upon peppering, my reason can find no other cause than what is aforesaid, or else a great fault in her keeper that would put his hawk to such a hazard before he had made her body able and fit for it. My place of peppering should be in a very warm room, although the fire were not very great, I cared not. My time should be in the evening, and for my company I cared not how many, both men and dogs, the more the better. For them the hawk, seeing so many things, that any one of them might give offence alone. There is now so much change, men, dogs, firelight, and candlelight, that she looketh at all, and knoweth not which to be afraid of. Besides, she hath a desire to dry herself, and so let her continue until she shall be dry, and hath picked herself. By that time I would think it time to give her some meat, and that should be but a little. She had none above one hour before I began to pepper her. My hood is laid away with no purpose to handle it before four and twenty hours were spent. That night she never went for my fist, but when I entreated my friend to ease me. But no, I seldom did sit still with her, but I would walk, and when I walked, or whether I sat still, I would entreat my hawk not to be idle, and in this manner to walk and travel with me, very often turning my hand gently, forward and backward, whereby my hawk should be made, leisurely to remove her feet one after another, forward and backward. I had rather she gently remove a foot, than with anger strike a wing, and the often removing her foot will save her many a bait. It may be your hawk, good friend, shall want that attendance that mine hath had for a fortnight before. If you fail in the beginning, look for no successful ending. It is very like you shall find it at this time, when she will distemper and overheat herself with baiting, which my former course has taken with my hawk, assureth me that I need fear no such thing. To proceed, I with my hawk upon my fist walk, and I entreat her to do so likewise, by the gentle removing her feet, which she should practice that matter to watch her this night, but it will be almost impossible to keep her waking. I have heard of some that have watched their hawk seven nights, in as many days, and still she would be wild, ramish and disorderly. Know, good reader, that a little sleep will suffice nature in any creature, and when a hawk is upon the fist, the man spending his time with sitting still, talking, or at tables, he may be virtuously spending his time in reading the scripture. In this time, his hawk sits still, she hath no exercise, and there is little difference in this, either to be upon a perch or his fist. He may say, If I should set her upon a perch, whensoever it were in her sight, she would bait to go to it. I ask, What is the difference between baiting to go to the perch, or baiting to fly from all things else? And thus you shall never have her a well-manned hawk. What are the discommodities that follow a hawk thus manned? She will endure nothing, because she hath not been made acquainted with anything. For when her master or keeper should see her and take offence or dislike, he will avoid that, because she shall not bait. Another while, he crieth out, Come not in the tail of my hawk, but whosoever shall undertake the course that I have used, he shall find his hawk seldom apt to take any offence at all. In a man's much sitting still in the time of maining his hawk, an ease apprehension will find a great error, for when the man sitteth still, the hawk sitteth still. 
and if fhe hath been truly watched, although fhe doth not wink or fhut her eyes, yet her heart may be fast fleeping ; or if it be in the day, fo long as her keeper fitteth ftill, fhe will be quiet ; but let him but ftir and walk, fhe liketh not that fhe hath fitten quietly upon his fift, and fhe is very loath to have that cuftom broken. Every offspring of any experience knoweth that a hawk thus used will thus bait. Why is it so? Not because her eyes meet with that which sitting still she saw not, but because now she meeteth labour, she is angry and discontent, because she is not as she was sitting at ease. A hawk before she is truly manned, and then hath been set and used unto a perch, will perpetually bait to be there. I hold it a great error to set her hooded, because she should not see whereon she sitteth. For sure I am this fashion will breed more than a little inconvenience, and yet hereby there is no love gained from his hawk. I have observed that it is much walking with my hawk that hath wrought such good effect in her. For in my walking and turning her eye doth still behold change of objects, and the stirring of her feet doth work as much or more good in her, for that maketh her desires to sit still, and desires to ease which baiting doth not give, and in the first making saveth her many a bait, as at my first beginning I labor to acquaint her with whatsoever a hawk may dislike. So my manner of working this is by that means which otherwise she would dislike, and that is carriage, and in this beginning to make my fist her perch, until she be such as I would have her, which this night and the next day shall make her, for this night is but the second night, and now my chiefest practice is the using her to the hood, which she will as familiar take as the falcon. I will show you my manner therein. I show her the hood, put it to and over her head many times. I find her so truly manned as that she will no more dislike the stroking therewith than the bare hand. I put it on gently and very leisurely, and I could never meet with any dislike hereof in my hawk. I would either put it on with my full hand, or else holding it by the tassel, whereby you may know that it was leisurely and gently done, which will be a means that, that she shall never hereafter be coy of it. But if my fine ostringer will show his dexterity and nimbleness of the hand, and with his finger in her neck, thrust her head into the hood, if he miss the right doing it, the next time he cometh in such a manner, he may peradventure find her dislike. This is the next way to make her think her head shall be pulled off. For the putting it on in such a quick manner, or thrusting her head into the hood with the finger behind, will make the hawk understand that it is no kindness, but violence and churlish usage, which must never be offered a hawk. And then you shall perhaps find her dislike your hand and hood coming to her, and so being a little coy or angry, never be content to carry her beak right but turn it in the hood, and so my fine quick hand bobbeth this hawk, and maketh her utterly dislike the hood. There is no way but gentleness to redeem a hawk so bobbed, and therefore I advise thee not to trust to the quickness of the hand, but rather to hold the hood by the tassel to her head, and then put it on leisurely with a light carriage. You may say she will not suffer this, so thinketh I also, after she hath once taken a dislike thereof, but I spake in the beginning of how to use your hood, so as she shall never 
must such ufage take dislike thereof. Ufe her as I have ufed mine, and you fhall find yours as I find mine. Admit your hawk fhall turn her head away from the hood. I know fhe will not bait from it. Perhaps fhe will likewife turn her body from the removing one or both of her feet. Upon the putting her head aside, I would ftill hold my hood within an inch of her head, until fhe fhould turn her head and then put it on leisurely. But if fhe ftir her body and remove her feet, then pull back your hand, and by turning your body and your fift whereupon she fitteth, set her right and sit, and then hold the hood gently to her nose, which she will be willing to put her head into, rather than stir any more, for she knoweth there is no hurt ensueth. I could with ordering of my hawk, as I have already set down, never find any hawk at a worse pass than so. Well, she is now well made acquainted with the hood. The morning cometh, which I have said before, rejeweth all her spirits, which before were heavy and dull at the beak of day getting company and dogs with me, or in the town, or rather where I should meet with most passengers, there would I be walking, hooding my hawk, and sometimes let her feed after her hooding. After one or two hours, being abroad, I would into the house again, where my hawk should show herself as sociable and familiar as a lanner. I use altogether a low perch, which set in the middest or in such place of the room wherein I was, as that both men, women, and children, and dogs should go by her. I did not fear, although they did wipe their gowns against her. I ever found them so glad of their ease. The second day I know my hawk is well maned as I can desire. It may be I will set her down upon such a low perch, and in such a place as I have foresaid, and I know there she would sit, not fearing anything, and not making one bait in two or three hours. If I would let her sit so long, which as yet I must not, unless hunger should enforce her to stir, I make no doubt but she would be very gentle to take up, if she do not jump to the fist. Now I follow her with castings, and I keep her upon my fist until I go to bed, and now I am able to govern her, not needing any more help, and yet I pray think, that I know if she be not held and kept in this good perfection, she will fall again. But all this I am able to do, only with the weight sitting up and early rising. I feed her so as that I know she shall cast the times, which I will carefully look for one hour before day, and when I take her up, I will surely please her with something. Then I fall to my old trade again, walking abroad as I did before, using her hood as I find cause. I never call her above eight or ten yards, until I find that she is bold enough and not fearful, and that she be fair in love with my voice, which I never fail to give her, even from the beginning of her feeding, until she is flying, and that is loud enough, as if I were to call her thirty or forty score, although I call her but ten yards. Well, when I begin to call her in cranes, although it be for so small a distance, it shall be done from the hood, and from the fist of another man, in manner as your long-winged hawk is lured, and when I call her twice or thrice at a time, between every calling I put on her hood, and so still I have her let in from the hood. Who knoweth not that a hawk set down upon a stile, block, or any other convenient thing, when she shall, with the often seeing the cranes drawn at length, and her keepers accustomed to manner, in calling her, soon learn to know 
that now she shall be fed, and will be ready to follow him before he can get twenty yards from her. But all this is not to the purpose. I have seen Haggard, with four days calling, not suffer the going from her five yards. But she should have been at his elbow after she had been once set down, and yet she was far enough from the perfection of coming, for it is the voice that must not only in this but in greater matters work a good effect in my hawk. As I am thus calling my hawk in cranes, it is very certain she will soon come to that understanding as that she will bait upon hearing my voice before she be unhooded. I then stay my voice until she be quiet. Then I call again, and then she stay my voice until she be unhooded. And again, I give my voice not holding out my fist unless I see her coming. My experience has taught me to stay her and not to let her come until she be quieted because I have seen long-winged talks with which profession I have made an end thirty years since. Let into the lure in the time of their baiting, when they have had their eye presently settled upon some other fair remote from the lure, whether they have presently gone and then not come to the knowledge, could not find the lure, and so have been lost. I spent two, three, and often four times of the day thus in calling my hawk. Then for the day, for the most part, my fist is her perch, and if I set her down, it shall be ever upon my low perch. Well, all sorts of people and dogs shall find travel by her, where she shall see the fire stirred and blown, and wood brought thereto, and diverse other such like objects. She will not for any or all of these make a bait. In this manner I have trained my hawk, that when she hath been a flyer, I durst set her down upon a velvet stool in a cleanly kept dining chamber or parlour, as the place whereunto I went, for I would have my hawks as much in my eye as could be. Perhaps I should see the lady or mistress of the house look discontently hereat. So well have I been acquainted with my hawk's good disposition that I have promised if my hawk should make a mute in the room I would lick it up with my tongue. For well I knew no angry mute should come from her, otherwise she would not mute. And I know well, unless I were negligent, which I would never be, that she would not stir until hunger did provoke it. This for the day. In the evening when I had called and supped her, then I would no more let her part from my fist, but continue until I fed myself. It may be if I had such means, she should not be upon the fist for that season also. And so until I went to bed, which the love to my hawk would not have hastened me. In the morning, before day, I would assuredly have her upon my fist, and follow her in such manner as I have formerly done, thinking that I could never be too frequent with my hawk, nor she with me. My inducements to carry her thus in the evening and night would make her love me as her perch, and by my taking her up so early in the morning, I would persuade her that there had been her perch all night. But whether my hawk will have this loving apprehension, or no, I would know not, yet I am assured it worketh this benefit, that she will endure me as much or more than any other hawk not so dealt with, and it is this that maketh her so willing to sit still and take her ease and not take offence, although there should fly about the house fire, dishes, trenchers, and anything else that would make mad other hawks, they shall not move her. Methinks I hear some man say, 
I have taken a very painful course in making my hog. I ask who will not fast one day to be assured that he shall feel no want so long as he liveth. Work but out your task in this fashion, and you shall during your hawk's life find none but playing days. Let me not omit anything in my proceedings. As for the hood, I never in the house let her sit unhooded at all. And when she is a flying hawk, never unhooded in the field. Be not negligent towards your hawk at no time, but especially while she is a manny. If you be, she will pay you for it in her flying. I am afraid to be tedious, and I cannot more briefly deliver my practice and my experience. I would gladly walk plainly and give unto every man full satisfaction. I should have forgotten one special benefit that is gained by your three nights painful following your hawk. That is, she shall not at all weaken herself with many baits. Also, her familiarity will be such as that you may thereby better her diet in her calling. And of a poor hawk from the cage, make her strong and full of flesh. The contrary, no doubt, followeth those hawks that are by fits dealt with all. One while carefully watched and manned, and to another time neglected, and then their diet shortened to make them comfortable at a keeper without form. Hence proceeded the marring of many hawks, that when they should be entered and fly, they are so weak as they are not able to show what they would do if they had strength. If this not be motive enough to make you have a care of your hawk's decaying strength and her falling of flesh, then you know that poverty is the mother and nurse of all diseases. I have followed advising too long, and less the delivering of my practice. Now to perceive therewith my hawk is to be called loose. She shall not be weakened or hanged with dragging or cranes about eight or nine score. And my manner is to call her thirty and forty score before I put her into a tree. And I use to call her at all hours in the day. I fear not her coming home unto me but admit what I have not met with, that she falleth off and go to a tree. It must be want of a stomach that maketh her do so, or want of weathering or bathing, which I will be sure she not want. Neither do I think she should want a stomach, which if she should want, that will make her sit quietly. And I had rather attend her pleasure with patience now than when I am in sport. I will tell you something touching this point. When I am travelled with my flying hawk, that is, as loving, as sociable, and comfortable to my will in all companies and times as I can desire, yet I do bear her barefaced for the most part of all my journey, and when I perceive she groweth hungry, then I put on her hood, and if there be no present hope of a flight, I set her upon the fist of one that knoweth what doth thereunto belong, then I pray to him ride hindmost of the company, and I put myself foremost. Then I call my hawk. When her hood being pulled off, she cometh by all the company merrily to the fist. Use maketh perfectness. Thus I use my hawk, and she never receives meat from me, but I call her. It may be you will be advised hereby to do the like. If you once find the benefit thereof, you will hold the greatest pain in effecting it. Sweet contentment and pleasure but to my hawk which doth not so but granted she should do so make me wait her pleasure 
I am not too hasty to call her until she hath taken her pleasure, which my observation I will soon discern, and then when I call her, I know she will soon please me, and so conclude we are both pleased. But if such an accident should befall me three or four nights before I went to fire, I would not fail but show her a partridge the next night. If I could get a hand partridge, it would please me. If not, I would not be at all sorry. But such a chance hath seldom befallen me, and therefore to hold on with my true proceeding, when I have my hawk perfectly coming, strong and in all points fit to fly. The night before I show her a partridge, at sunset, I set her down upon some stile, gate or rail, and walk from her. I would choose a place where there should be many high trees. I would not give her my voice until she went to a tree, but I would keep myself with my company twenty score from her, unless I should have one whose eye should attend her remove, lest she should go from me another way, whereby I should know the better what I had to do. When she doth remove, and set up and down, then I give her my voice, which she is glad to hear. Having taken her down, I supper, not putting her up any more. My reason for this course so taken is this. When my hawk is in a tree that hath been so long and manned by me, and a longer time been kept in bondage before she come to me, she now beginneth to know herself, and think of what she hath formerly done for herself. She would get her supper, and it is so late that she seeth nothing whereon to pray, and therefore she shall see the next night. What is in her power to command? You shall not need to bid her go, but she will give you cause of joy to see with what metal and spirit she flieth. No partridge in the world can fly from a good short-winged hawk, and the purr in her springing will make any hawk fly there too. If she have been rightly ordered and in strength, I will advise you once more. Be sure your hawk hath all her rights. Let her not have any smack of wildness, nor want either weather or water. It is to be understood that I have showed my hawk water within two or three days after she hath been peppered, but it should be at a brook or some other gravelly place fit for that purpose, holding my fist to the water, and at the end of my lines in my right hand, if she did not bathe at my first or second day, showing her water, but refused it, it should be that she had no desire to bathe, and that when she refused so to do, wildness or ramishness should not be the cause thereof. If she did jump it to the water, I would have something in my fist ready to show her. When she made show of coming from the water, which would make her ever after, when she had done, look for the fist, where she would dry, prune, and oil herself, and as yet she never had other perch to weather upon than my fist, neither shall she until she be a true flying hawk. Now for the place where I would first show her a partridge. It should be in a champion, where partridges will surely fly to a hedge. Then my hawk must needs take stand upon a bush in the hedge, for it is great odds that she shall not have it in the foot, and although she be fair behind it, yet she will assuredly go to the place, because the love of the partridge inviteth it, and it is odds that nearer than that she shall have no place fit to go with unto. While at the retrove there is no doubt but she will have it. But say that my hog either has it in the foot or otherwise, that she was so near it that she hath with striking at it. If the fall beat it clean through the hedge, and there my hawk sitteth upon the ground, 
it can prove no worse. If she have it in the foot, we are well pleased. If she sit upon the ground, I stay both men and dogs, for it may be it is not flicked. A hawk that thus showed her mettle will not sit long so, but up unto a bow. Then I ride in quietly. If the partridge be there, it is very lucky. If not, I hold it no ill luck to have so hopeful a young hawk. But I go presently about to please her, having a brown chicken in my bag. The neck I pull in asunder, but break no skin, and tied to my lures or cranes, holding the end in my hand. I throw it out fluttering and thereupon, please her as well as if she had killed a partridge. I doeth not tie it to my lures, as fearing her dragging or offering to carry it out of a wild, ramish or any other ill disposition. For I have before this tied a dead fowl to my cranes, and thrown it out unto her, amongst men, dogs, and horses walking about her, and thereon I let her take all her pleasure, but by little bits of warm meat I sup her from my hand, letting her wholly see all that I do, until I see her ready to forsake the quarry to catch my hand, and then I deliver up more covertly until I have her jump to my fist. Where with plumage or tiring, I end her supper. You shall hereafter find a better benefit to many purposes by your dealing with your hawks thus. Thus I reward my hawk upon her partridge, and the commodities thereof exceed their understanding that have not made use thereof. As I have told you that I would choose a champion country wherein to enter my hawk, yet it should be so as that there should be some small hedges. And I always have this consideration that I will well know that whither I ride there should have been no store of hawking, and then I know they can fly no better than a hand partridge, and they will fly worse at the season than some partridges do that have been well flown to three weeks before Michael Amos. I have ridden out of Essex into Sussex, unto the east part of the downs there, to enter my hawks, where I have not failed to do it, to the great wonder of the worthy knights and gentlemen in those parts, and some right worshipful in the west parts of those downs can witness that in their company I have killed for the most part of a month, together with an intermude goshawk, eight, nine, or ten partridges in a day. The day of my going thither, and the day of my return to London, was just five weeks, and it was a fortnight or more, in Michael Amos' term, when I came back. I killed in that time, with that one hawk, four score and odd partridges, five pheasants, seven rails, and four hares against my will. This is not untrue, for I will present that much honored knight with one of my books, who saw all of this done and every man know that what we lost some time with fogs and rain and my going and coming spent four days i have in the east part shown such hawks as there were never seen the like there and all of them made in this manner as i have delivered if they had fallen in fern or among some small shrubbed furzies i would when i came in but hold up my hand and she would presently be there or if any man else got in before me, if he did not hold out his fist, she would light up upon his head. Is this not a sweet comfort for so little pains? If your hawk be followed with flying, as I use mine, 
you shall have no cause to complain of the short-winged hawk that if they sit still but one hour they are presently wild and care not for their keeper you shall rather have a care to give her ease setting her still as i have used mine upon a low perch and in the greatest assembly never hooded in the house and so when she is to weather abroad unhooded upon a low perch never putting her in a corner to take weather and ease in for neither all nor none of my hawks will be diseased except for purpose foul play be offered which i hope i shall never meet with if it hath rained then ye shall be enforced to set her high for if she bait to come to you either when you come to take her up or otherwise she shall wet her wings so as she shall have more need to weather than when she is set out so near as i can remember i will admit nothing to my practice the manner of giving my casting was overhand without any meat when i went to bed although she had much meat above it did not hurt casting thus given could not hinder the pudding over her meat nor should lie in her panel with her meat but after the meat is gone then cometh the casting that maketh clean and carrieth away what is left thus i do before she is flying but after she is flying she will upon every flight take some plumage and therefore with the bones and feathers of a partridge wing i conclude her supper i never fail giving her castings for i can find the perfect or imperfect estate of my hawk no better than by the knowledge of her casting and i think it will give the best instructions to a young beginner even to know the times of feeding his hawk and so by his diligent observation come to better understanding i think castings are as strong as natural as meat for my own part from the beginning of hawking until after michael amos i have given two castings and received two every day from my hawk and sometimes three i must explain myself thus when i have early in the morning killed a partridge and given my hawk the head and her foot which i suddenly get again for if i should give her leave to eat all the heads i must not fly so often as i do but so soon as she hath the head i quickly pull out the heart and break off the wing and then holding the heart to her and bruising it between my finger and thumb she receiveth it at three or four bits i continue my hand still in his place and then cunningly i take up the head letting her jump to my fist where she shall plume upon the wing until i have bitten the skull from the brains and she may have them without bones but it hath thus fallen out when i have so early flown my hawks that she hath eaten the head which i have been willing to let her do and i have given the heart withal because there were other hawks to fly no great store of partridges by which means it would be long before my turn would be to fly again and it hath so proved that i have not flown at all but riding homeward for such is my manner ever to call my hawk i set her loose upon a pair of bars going from her preparing meat for her dinner when i walked about fifty or threescore paces i gave her my voice and she made no respect of it that usually upon my first call would be at my elbow i stayed and marveled and because the day was glorious and the time dangerous to tempt a hawk to play with the wanton i went back i must confess in some fear giving the fairest words i could stay her lest she should remove good hawk she had no such thought but when i came near her she gave me a small casting 
that she had taken in the morning, and then I gave her another, which she repaid at three o'clock in the afternoon. I have many times, and lately, seen old and such as went for most expert ostringers. When we have had a hawking journey, been afraid to have anything stir in the chamber, for hindering their hawks from casting, and to keep the curtains drawn before the windows, not suffering the least light to appear so near as they can, for that would be another hindrance to their casting. All this while they lay in bed and give aim, and when they are up they are driven to seek dark corners wherein to set their hawks until they cast, when it were more fit they were in the field to fly. I dare not reprove. I know they know their own heirs. I was never yet enforced to stay for my hawks, casting. Neither do you make any doubt, if you will follow your hawk with that familiarity that I have followed mine, either in the field or in the house, carried bare face, in either places she will cast, or in any of them, to pull off her hood when she offereth to cast. Not long after my hawk hath cast, I usually give her a little meat. There is nothing but sickness, a bar against all good perfections, or wildness or ramishness, which maketh her stare and look about her, which makes her afraid to perform those duties, which otherwise she would do. The hawks, no better manned than so, are many other ways more defective and disorderly than so. Thus much for ordering my hawk with castings for her diet. I have flown a hawk all one season, and never fed upon the best meat I could. She never tasted beef, neither was her feathered meat, but very seldom cold, and to help her better, a night did hardly escape me, but I thrust out the marrow of the wings, of either duck, pheasant, partridge, dove, rook, or such like, breaking the bone off at either end, and so with the feather, the cut end off, drive it whole without breaking into a dish of fair water, setting my hawk loose upon the table. I would give it her between my thumb and forefinger, which she would much desire and much joy in, and would expect such kindness at my hands. The better the meat is, less will serve. Your practice will soon tell you that there is difference between the wing of an old dove and the wing of a young pigeon, and so much is the difference between the wings of a dove flying abroad for his food, and the dove kept long in a mew for provision. Although you shall find the one lean, you shall find it tender and moist, and the dove in the mew, although it is to be extremely full of flesh, and with his ease and good feed laid with fat upon the neck and under the wing, yet this pulled in pieces you shall find it hard and extremely dry. Now you understand how I made my hawk flying to the field, and if you will now suppose her to be truly flying, that she will tend up on the dogs for a retrieve, for nature will quickly teach her to know what good service the spaniel doth her. Say by some ill accident I miss a flight, the partridge may be run into a coney hole. It is in Kent a safe and common rescue. Or the hawk may strike at it in the fall, and so the partridge flick. In Sussex I have seen two flights, and one after none, lost. The partridge would fall upon the hedges were a rod broad in some place, very thick, and never come to the ground. If, I say, one of these or other such-like accident should befall me, 
Otherwise I held it very hard matter to miss a flight, and although I know if I would let my hawk alone and beat to serve her with one other partridge that she would tend upon the dogs and so kill it. I dare do no such thing, for I know if I should use her much to that, she would fall better in love with my dogs than with me, for they answer her attendance with springing a partridge unto her, and after a few times so served, although for want of partridges they cannot do it, yet she will expect it with such desire as that she will neglect my calling her, and so in the end prove an ill-comer, and then want no ill-conditions. There is no readier way to catch a hen. One fault begetteth another. If she should, in this following the dog's light upon a hen, get some in your company to run and catch her by the legs, letting the hen go, if you have none in your company that you can do it handsomely, do it yourself, in such a manner, and then setting her down upon some convenient place, call her and give her some meat and plumage, and so she will be well reconciled, and not at all the more unfit to fly again. Now I have my hawk at this pass, I desire to go to the covet. If the covert be large, I put up my hawk, not making question, but will draw the dogs after. Although I should stand still, the field hath taught her that. If I serve her not a quarter or half an hour, I take her to my fist and give her something, and then I put her up again, and this better is my hawk's condition. But if I should with vain hope let her still draw and not serve her, I fear very hunger will make her look out to save her life. The hawk is not herein to be blamed, for extreme hunger will make her keeper forget himself. I pray you note hereby, and by what I have formerly said, that your voice, be it high or low, neither your action in the covert is that she looketh for, for she will give diligent attendance unto the dogs. If I spring a pheasant, I cannot in the covert have my dogs at that command I have them in the field. Let me make all the haste I can after my hawk. I might miss of the quick finding her, if by my dog's questing I were not drawn where she is. It is ten to one she will not hunt for it upon the ground. If she should, it will teach her wit. But it is more likely that she will, if the covert with broom or furzes be not thick in the bottom, but that she may see it. She will, as it runneth, tend it, flying over it from tree to tree, and when the dogs doth spring it, she is so over it, as that it will never rise to go from a high perch. If it should take the hawk, would have it before it come there. And I then falling amongst the dogs, they strive who is most worthy. All this is quickly done, and before the falconer can get into them, it may be you shall find your hawk to enjoy it, if it be with some contention all the better for my hawk, for it will forbid her not to be too hot of a pheasant upon the ground, and you shall with your practice find the profit of it as I have done. For in the killing of more pheasants than I will name, and I think in seven years hawking to the covet, I have never had cause to cry. Here, retire. For if my hawk hath it not in the foot the first flight, when I know my dogs will not meddle with it, then I shall, before I can get to them assuredly, hear a bay and my hawk over the head of it. When having been well flown, the fear of the hawk maketh the pheasant sit fast. And I as hawk would be hotter, and it may strike at it, and miss it, 
and so ftrike herfelf under the pheafant ; and then if the pheafant goeth upon that advantage, it is loft without great luck. Your Ramoth hawk will not often lofe a pheafant thus ; fhe partly forbeareth, becaufe the dogs are fo hotly baying, and it may be fhe hath met with fome rough dealing amongft them before, but fhe will fo tend it as that fhe will challenge it for her mafter. And I have ever had fuch fuccefs with fuch hawks as what with their true flying and diligent attendance of the retrieve. I fhould at feldom find the pheafant but fo high as that I might take it down with my hand, or elfe fhake it down with my arms, which done, I would go to a convenient place, whether my hawk would diligently wait upon me, and there holding it by the legs, I should soon have my hawk upon the body, but I would cleanly put her to the head, covering the body with my hat or glove. I would not stick to please her well, notwithstanding some men's opinions are that if they be well rewarded and kindly pleased upon a pheasant, they will forbear the true stiving partridge. I know not whether my discretion has so prevailed with my hawks or their own good dispositions have wrought such understanding in them, but assuredly I never had hawk that I have had the handling of from the beginning but they have loved the partridge much better than the pheasant. It may be a wonder to some why I desire not to have my hawks take a pheasant from the perch, and further wondered at why I should allow of some contention between my hawk and dogs. I understand that generally all dogs are hotter in the covert than in the field, and I may meet with dogs, that if she should not be coy of them, they would endanger her life, especially if she should catch a hare, and so might my own dogs do against their will. I have seen a pheasant, when the hawk hath come to strike at him at the perch, chop to another bow with such ill, as that he hath gotten a long bow between him and the hawk, and with his cunning removes beat the hawk out of breath, and in all this conflict would strive to get above the hawk, and when he hath had his advantage, go proudly away and leave the hawk out of breath and unable to fall. It may likewise be said that I am too peremptory in my opinion, in presuming my hawk shall kill the first partridge. For my opinion in the covert, having my hawk so familiar made as that in the field, she is well pleased with my loving dealing with her, and will attend my coming into her, not fearing anything so I be by her. So would I have her in the covert wholly to rely upon me, and be confident that when I shall come unto her, she shall have her desire satisfied. She will soon understand thus much, with using her in such a manner as I have foretold. And as for my hawk, I am most confident in her entering herself. She hath no way been weakened. She is familiar, strong, and able, and I know nature hath taught her to do the best she can. You have been formally told how and where I would enter my hawk at partridges that have not been flown at, and in fair fine. I advise you what to do by telling you what I have done. I was entered to fly at a goshawk of my neighbors, and I would not kill a partridge, nor had killed one that year. I flew her to the covert, where I so encouraged my hawk, as that winter she proved a good partridger. This approveth that the flying to the covert doth not hinder a hawk's metal in the field. I did not know Sir Edward Soliard, a knight of high estimation in that art, as well as otherwise for his worthy disposition fly a foolish goshawk at blackbird and thrush and he was glad 
when he had gotten her to that perfection, to beat it into a hedge or bush. He did it to make her know that she had a commanding power over fowl. If she would put herself to it, she proved a very good hawk. I know many will say they have had hawks, that if they had once seen a pheasant, that then they would kill no more partridges that year. It is very like there have been many such. And as I confess that, so I pray you give me leave to think that the fault was not in them, but in the unskillfulness of their keeper. Some men, so soon as their hawks give up a partridge, do presently work upon them with scourings, and then pinch them, and shorten their diet, by which means they are unable to kill a partridge, or thereby their courage is so taken from them that they will not show what they are able to do. I would advise you herein, but all is in the practice and handling. I will tell you my course. If I meet with such a hog, and my reason for it, contrary to most men's opinions, I set up my rest that in ten days I will fly my hawk no more, but I will strive with all the art I have to bring her to as much courage and strength as ever she had with good meat and some other devices I would practice upon her, wherewith you shall meet amongst my receipts set forth for cures. I would now have more care in making this hawk, for it is credit to make of a buzzard a good hawk. It is not my meat and diet I give her, must alone affect this in my hawk, but a diligent care over her for other wants, as mating, bathing, and weathering, all special means to make a hawk joy in herself, and she shall bait as little as I can for weakening her. When I have brought my hawk to such perfection, I dare promise to myself she shall then do as well and better than ever she did. Although I have been tedious, and at large set down my manner of practicing with the sore ramish hawk, Yet I do not think there is anything set down, but some will be content to have the reading thereof, and let me deliver this as my last request. When you have made a perfect good hawk, let her not be neglected, but keep her so. The keeping is much easier than the making her so. I assure you in all my proceedings, from the first to the last with my hawk, I never found it painful, but the comforts I had of good conclusion fed me with sweet contentment and pleasure. I now follow with that I show how to reclaim any short-winged hawk from any evil condition. End of First Treaty